and it's just it's just really good to be be here with everyone this morning, and uh, and to have this time of of worship together. Go ahead, Moraf, and and put up the the first slide in the presentation. We have been since the beginning of uh, this year on the Sundays when it's been my privilege to speak, looking at Jesus as the master teacher and looking at some of the examples and the ways that he presents himself to be such in, in teaching in various ways and under various circumstances and delivering messages in, in uh, different situations to different audiences of people, sometimes to one person, sometimes to many. And this morning we are going to begin our last portion of this series of lessons. It's kind of what I've been leading up to since we began this series of lessons, the beginning of this year, of looking at the lesson that Jesus delivered to his apostles on the night before he would be crucified and sacrifice his life. If we, if we ask ourselves a question, I don't know if this is a, a question that you've ever asked yourself, but if you knew that you were having the last conversation that you would ever have in this life with people that you love the most, what would you say? If you knew that this was going to be the last opportunity to talk to your family, your closest friends, your loved ones, and say the things that you would most want them to have on their hearts going forward as you and they part, what would you say to them? What thoughts would you leave with them? What words of wisdom would you share? What would you most want them to remember? This is something I started thinking about very early on in my preaching career. I began my first regular preaching opportunity in January of 1987. And I know for some of you that's like, was the world even in existence then? <laughs> and yes, it was. We were, there were some of us who were actually alive in 1987. But a couple of years after that, we were coming to the end of 1989. And it occurred to me that at some point I was going to present the last sermon that I would preach in the 1980s. And so with that thought in mind, I began thinking, you know, if this were literally the last sermon I ever preached, what would I want to say? If this were going to be the last time I ever stood before this group of people whom after a couple of years of association I loved very dearly, this is going to be the last time we talked, what would I want to say? What would I want them to remember as we parted company at the end? And so I wrote a sermon that I entitled The Last Sermon of the 1980s. And I presented it on the final Sunday of 1989. Well, ten years later, I was still there. And I pulled out that outline... And I revised it, tweaked it a bit, updated some things, and presented the last sermon of the 1990s on the last Sunday of 1999. 
Then again, 10 years after that, on the final Sunday of 2009, I again took that same outline and revised it, tweaked it some, and presented the last sermon of the 2000s. Jesus knew on the night that he was about to be betrayed that this would be the last time that he would have an extended conversation with these men who had become such an integral part of his life over the course of the last three plus years. Men that he had walked with great distances. Men that he had eaten meals with. Men that he had slept out under the stars with or in the homes of those who took them in. Men who had heard him present sermon after sermon, seen him work miracle after miracle. Men who had come to know without question in their minds and in their hearts that this was not just another great teacher. That this was the Messiah. This was the promised anointed one of God that their people had been waiting for to appear for hundreds of years. And now he knew that this was going to be the last time he was going to sit down and talk with them. And so it's, it's valuable for us to look at this and say, well, what did Jesus say to them when he knew that this was going to be his last opportunity to talk with them. And as I said, I've been leading up to this, what's going to end up being a two-part lesson. We'll cover the other half of it next Sunday. I've been leading up to this for a couple of reasons. Number one, we were going to get to the end of the series at some point. But also I've known for a while that these last couple of Sundays of the month of June would be the last couple of Sundays that I would be here for a while. That, and this is not a secret, some of you have known, I haven't really talked to it, to all of you about it in any great degree, but some of you know, that there's been some changes in the circumstances of my life that are going to result in me moving on from this area, at least for for the foreseeable future. And that doesn't mean I'm gone forever. In fact, the, the trustees and I have had a number of conversations about how we might work things out that I drop back in every now and again and present a lesson on a Sunday. But as far as my being up here on a regular basis, these are going to be the last couple of Sundays I get to do that. And so I thought it was sort of appropriate that Jesus' last message to his apostles would sort of be coinciding with, you know, if I were never going to have the opportunity to speak to my brothers and sisters at Lake Merced again, what would be some of the things I'd want to say? And fortunately for me, Jesus already said all of those things. And we're going to look at some of those things as we go through today's lesson and next Sunday. Jesus planned his final message. 
The things that he said to his disciples on that night were not just random thoughts out of his head. He knew this day was coming. He knew this night, this meal, this last supper was coming. And as John begins his account of that evening, in John chapter 13, he makes this point. He says, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. And having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. These twelve men, who had been so closely associated with him during this three-year period when he was preaching and teaching, he loved them to the end. And as he sits down with them at the table, and as they break bread together for what would be his last time with them in this life, his mind was certainly on, what do I want to say? What words of wisdom do I want them to hear? What do I want them to remember as this is what Jesus said to us that last night we were together? And so we can be certain that this message was not just sort of random thoughts, but that Jesus had this message clearly in mind as He and the disciples sat down together. And this is where he started. Beginning at the first verse of John chapter 14, Jesus said, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. And you know the way to the place where I am going. When you start a conversation that's going to be difficult, and all of us who have lived any, any length of time have had difficult conversations. I remember very vividly the first time that I had to tell my daughter that her mother had cancer. And I remember very vividly the second time, several years later, that I had to tell her that that cancer had returned. And I remember incredibly vividly when not very long after that, I had to tell her that the doctors had told us that there was nothing that they could do to preserve her life and that she was going to die. Those are hard conversations. And I will never forget having to have those conversations with my daughter. But I remember wanting at the very beginning to cushion the blow. To want to start that conversation by, okay, these are going to be some hard things to hear, but I don't want you to worry. Because that's what we do, isn't it? We have to say something hard to somebody. We want to cushion the blow. And notice how Jesus starts. 
Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. He starts by reassuring them. Because he knows some really hard things are coming. But he wants to begin by reassuring them. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in me. Even as you believe in God. My father's house. I've been telling you. That there's a place there for you. I wouldn't have told you that. If it weren't true. And if I'm going there. To prepare a place for you. You can be assured that I will come back and take you to be with me. So that we can once again be together. He wanted to comfort them with the, with the knowledge that he was going to be leaving them. But he would come back. And when he came back they would be together forever. But then notice what he says next. You know the way to the place where I am going. Now that must have been a puzzling thing to hear, mustn't it? Jesus said, I'm going to my father's house. I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to come back, take you to be with me. And you know the way to go there. And, and, and they're thinking, what? And in fact, it's Thomas who asks the question that all of them were thinking. Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? It's sort of like if you told somebody, I want, I want you to come over for dinner at my house, and then you hang up the phone. And they're like, I don't know where you live. <laughs> How am I going to get there? And Jesus answers Thomas's question by saying this. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus responds to Thomas's question, which is, how can we know how to get to a place that we don't even know where it is? Jesus says, look at me, Thomas. I'm the way. You don't have to know where my father's house is. You just have to know me. I'm the way. And if you trust in me, I'm going to get you there. And that's all you need to know. That is your truth. That is your life. That I am the way to the Father. And in fact, there's no other way to get to the Father except through me. And in fact, he says, if you really know me, you will know my Father. If you've listened, 
Jesus is saying, to everything that I've said to you over the course of these last three years, you know what my father sounds like. If you've watched me doing the miracles that I've performed over the last three years, you've seen what my father's power can do. If you want to know my Father, you know Him because you know me. You've seen Him, Jesus is saying, because you have seen me. And I am your path to Him. And at that point, Philip, still not on the train yet, understandably so. These are hard things to understand. Philip says, well, Lord, show us the Father, and that'll be enough for us. Lord, if you just have the Father walk in here, we'll get it. Call him in. Have him stand here among us as, as you're sitting with us at the table, and, and, and that will be all we need. How often do we encounter people who have the same struggle as Philip is having? If you could just show me God, I'd believe. If you could just walk him in here, I'd believe. Show him to me. And I can have faith. And again, that's, Philip is talking, but that's what all of them are thinking. Lord, just show us the Father. And Jesus answers, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father? And the Father is in me. The words that I say to you, I, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. If you want to see God, Jesus is saying, look right here. This is the God you can see. Look at his Son and see the Father. You know, we, we, we celebrate the third Sunday of June as Father's Day. And those of us who have had the privilege of being fathers know what a precious thing it is to be a father. And how many of us have had that experience that little tug of pride on the inside when somebody looks at our child and says, I see you in her. Or I see you in him. He's got your eyes. She's got your coloring. That's your nose right there. That's your smile. And as fathers, we know how that makes us feel. 
yeah, that you can see me there. And Jesus is saying that very thing. He's saying, look at me. If you want to see my Father, here he is revealed. Look at me and you see him. And in fact, everything I've ever said to you, Jesus is saying, the words have not been mine. They've been the words of my Father. I don't speak on my own authority. It's my Father living in me who is doing His work. When you hear me, you hear Him. I don't need to bring Him physically into the room, Jesus is saying, for you to see Him, Philip. He's right here. Embodied in the person of his son. And Jesus continues. He says, believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. I want those words to sit with us for just a moment and resonate a little bit. Because there is something that we as Christians are often accused of by those who are in the world and who do not understand how we believe what we believe. We are often accused of having what they call blind faith. Jesus never asked his disciples for blind faith. He's never asked us for blind faith. He's never said, I want you to believe just because. He's always said, here's the evidence for you to believe. And notice that on this last night that he's together with his disciples, that's what he tells them. Believe on the evidence of the work. If you want to believe that I am the Father's Son, look at everything you've seen over these last three years. And let that speak to you. And the Scripture says that to us time and time again. The 19th Psalm begins, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies show His handiwork. God has never said to us, just believe in me because I said. God has always said, look at what I've done. And believe on the basis of the evidence. When Jesus had that conversation with the sisters of Lazarus, in which he said, I am the resurrection and the life, he didn't just say that and expect them to believe it just because. He went to the tomb where their brother had lain for four days and said, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus came out so that they would know 
that when Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life, there's the proof right there. Here's a man who'd been dead for four days, so dead they didn't even want to open up the, the grave because they thought, Lord, it's going to stink. He demonstrated his words with a proof. When the disciples of John the Baptist came and asked Jesus, should, should we follow you or should we be looking for somebody else? John wants to know. John was in prison at that time. Jesus said, go back and tell John what you see and hear. The blind see. The deaf hear. The lame walk. The mute speak. The dead are raised. The poor have good news preached to them. Go back and tell John that you've seen those things. And let John decide on the basis of the evidence. Is this the Christ? He doesn't just say go back and tell John to believe in me because I said so. He says, look at the proof and decide on that. And that's what Jesus leaves with his apostles on this final night. I want you to believe in me, but I don't want you to just believe in me because I said it. I want you to consider everything you've seen and believe on the evidence. Believe on everything that I've shown you. And then notice what he says next. He says, very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I've been doing. And they will do even greater things than these. Because I am going to the Father. And we might be puzzled by that. We might say, well, how are we going to do greater things than Jesus did? Jesus stopped a storm with a word. Jesus fed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and a couple of fish. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. How are we going to do greater things than that? Well, here's the answer to that. All of those things are temporary. Jesus told the storm, peace, be still. But was that the last time it ever got stormy? Nope. <laughs> We've seen that. It gets stormy again every now and again. Those 5,000 people who ate those bre the bread and the fish... Got hungry again the next day. Lazarus, though raised from the, from, from the dead for, for a while, eventually died again. How do we know? Well, he's not here. <laughs> All those things are temporary. You know what's not temporary? Salvation in Jesus Christ. When we share the gospel with someone and they believe and obey and they receive the forgiveness of their sins and the salvation of their soul, we have done something that is not temporary. We have shared with them something that is eternal. 
Something that's greater than stopping a storm or feeding a multitude or even raising a dead man from a grave that he's eventually going to return to again. We have shared with them the gift of eternal life, which is a greater gift than any gift. And that's what Jesus means when He says, those who believe in Me will do greater things than I've done. Because all of the things that He had shown them were temporary. But He was going to give them a gift to share with the world that had eternal benefits. And you and I have that same gift to share with the world. We can give someone else something that gives them an eternal benefit. The greatest gift of all. And then Jesus continues to say, and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. And we might look at that and say, well, surely they asked for stuff that they didn't get. <laughs> Just like we ask for things sometimes and we don't get them. But notice what Jesus says twice there. I will do whatever you ask. What are the next three words there? In my name. And then again, you may ask me for anything in my name. And he's simply saying there, anything that I, by my authority in God, will give you, you can ask for. And sometimes we don't understand why he doesn't give us something. Why don't I get this? Why, why, do I, why is my answer to this prayer not yes? Because he knows better than we. You know, I might think I want that new car that I pray so desperately for. And he might know that I'm just, just as well taking the bus. We don't, we don't see the big picture. We only see what's right in front of our faces. His picture is universal. He sees everything. And therefore we can ask and he looks at it in the big picture. And where it fits in the picture to give us what we want, he has the power and will give it. Amen. And we can trust in that. But now notice the next thing he tells them. He's just been talking about, you know, me giving to you but now notice what he says is their resp necessary response to that. He says, if you love me, keep my commands. If you love me, keep my commands. It is easy for us. to sing songs, I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. It is more challenging, however, to live, oh, how I love Jesus. 
Because sometimes Jesus wants us to do stuff we don't want to do. That happens to me all the time. I look at God's word and he says, do this. And I'm like, Lord, I don't want to do that. Or times when I look in God's word and he says, don't do that. And I said, but Lord, I really want to do that. If you love me, he says, keep my commands. If you really love me, do what I tell you. It's not just a one-way street where I do everything for you and you have no responsibility. I will do great things for you, but if you love me, keep my commands. And he's going to come back to this point. We'll see that vividly in, again in next week's lesson. He's going to come back to this point again and drive it home. If you love me, keep my commands. And then he says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you, to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him. For he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Jesus is telling them, I'm going to be apart from you physically. The Jesus in the flesh that you see is no longer going to be walking around with you as we have been walking around together for these last three years. But the Spirit of Truth will come to you. And He will live with you and in you. And his presence will always be with you. And notice the word that Jesus uses to describe that spirit. He says, he will give you an advocate. What is an advocate? An advocate is somebody who stands up for you. Who speaks up for you who stands and defends you, who pleads your case. You know, if you have to go into court for whatever reason, you don't go into court just by yourself. You have an attorney. That attorney is your advocate. That person's job is to plead your case with the judge and or the jury and to defend your, your rights. To stand up for you. To speak where you can't speak. And Jesus says, the Father is going to give you an advocate. I'm not going to be here to stand in front of you and speak for you. But the Spirit of Truth will. And He will live with you and be in you. He will always be there to advocate for you, to stand up for you, to defend you, to plead your case to the Father. Even though I'm not here physically to do that, He will always be with you. And then Jesus tells them, before long, the world will not see me anymore. But you will see me. 
Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will recognize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. The Apostle Paul in Romans the 8th chapter would ask the rhetorical question, what can separate us from the love of God? And he comes up with a long list of things. Can any of these things separate us from the love of God? And his conclusion ultimately is no. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And that's what Jesus is telling his disciples. I will not be here physically with you, but I will not be separated from you because you are in me and I am in you. The Spirit of truth will be with you to defend you, to advocate for you, to uphold your truth. And we will always be united, even though physically we are separated. But remember, if you love me, keep my commands. Because as he goes on to say, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Notice the way that he phrases that first sentence. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. Sometimes we think just knowing the commands is all we need to do. Yeah, I know what the Bible says. I read that old book. I know all that stuff. Having the commands is only half the battle. In fact, it's really not even half. (laughs) That's just the first piece of the battle. (laughs) The big part of the battle is actually keeping those commands. Doing all that stuff you learned from that old book. That's really the hard part. Reading the book is easy. Doing the book is hard. But Jesus says both of those things have to be true. If we love him. We have to not only have his commands, but we also have to keep them. That's how we demonstrate that we love him. And that love is reciprocal. The one who loves me, he says, will be loved by my Father, and I will love them and will show myself to them. If we expect that embrace of the Father and the Son, we can't expect them to do all the work. We have to reach out in love as well. And the way that we do that, Jesus says, is by keeping the things that he's said for us to do, doing the things that he's commanded of us. And again, he says, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. Notice he said that now three times. Do we, not, do we think maybe that's important? Do we think maybe that might be something on this final night he was with his apostles that he really wanted to drill home? Because he said that now several times. If he said it once, it was important. 
It's now the third time he said it. It must have been really important. And again, remember, he knows this is the last time he's going to be able to talk with them face to face before this life for him is over. So he's thought about this. These are the things he really wants them to remember. And one of those things, perhaps one of the most significant things, because the one he keeps repeating, is that if you love me, do what I tell you. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. What is the consequence of not doing what Jesus says to do? The consequence of that is that we're basically telling him, I don't really love you. If we're not willing to do the things he said do, what we're really saying is, Lord, I just don't love you that much. I don't love you enough to do the things you said to do. And here's the proof of it. I'm not going to do what you said. Again, easy to sing, Oh, how I love Jesus. Much harder to do, Oh, how I love Jesus. And then he says, but remember, the words that you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. These things that I'm asking you to do, Jesus says, they're not things I just made up. These are my Father's words. If you don't do what I say, what you're really doing is rejecting the Father. Because these are his words, his, his commands, his directions. When you tell me you don't love me by not doing what I say, you're telling my father you don't love him because you're not doing what I say. And that's a hard statement to make, but it's one he's made now several times, so it must be important for our understanding. But as he brings this part of the conversation to a close, notice what Jesus says. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the advocate comes back to that word again. That one who's going to stand up for you, who will speak for you, who will defend you. The advocate the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. Now the benefit of the, for, for, for these men of that was that everything that Jesus had, had said to them over the course of the last three years, the Holy Spirit was going to enable them to remember so that they would be able to share it with others. The benefit is of, for us is that he had them write it down. John, one of the men sitting in that room, wrote these words down. 
by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So that we could be reminded of the things that Jesus said. Because we weren't there. Remember how the Apostle Paul describes the words that are written when he writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy. He says, all Scripture is what? Inspired by God. That word inspired literally means contains the breath or spirit of God. The Scripture has been breathed out by God. And he says it's profitable for instruction, for correction, for reproof. The difference between correction and reproof is one's this is what you ought to be doing, the other is this is what you shouldn't be doing. And for instruction in righteousness, to tell us how to live. That, he says, the person of God can be complete and equipped for every good work. The Holy Spirit, the Advocate, breathed those words into that old book. So that we could be reminded of everything that Jesus said. We could be taught everything we needed to know. In order to demonstrate our love for Him by doing what He said. And then lastly, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Remember, that's where he started the conversation. He said, do not let your hearts be troubled. And he comes back to this at the conclusion of this part of the discussion. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. I am leaving my peace with you. And it's not like the world's peace. Because when we look at the world, we know what the world's peace is like. The world can't be peaceful for five minutes. The world can't stop one argument before another one breaks out. The world can't stop one war, one conflict, one outbreak before another one happens. That's the nature of peace in the world. It's no peace. But Jesus says, I'm giving you my peace. Not like the world's peace. But a peace that, as Paul would describe it, that surpasses all understanding. A peace that will enable you, Jesus is saying, to be at peace even though the world around you is constantly in conflict. A peace that will allow your hearts not to be troubled. And that will enable you not to be afraid. Because I am with you. My Holy Spirit, my Advocate, is with you. Don't be afraid. Things are going to look scary. In just a few hours, things are going to look terrifying. But don't be afraid. Because I'm giving you peace. On this 
last night that Jesus would spend with his apostles in this life. Here's what he wanted them to know. He wanted them to know that he was going to prepare a place for them. And that he was the way to that place. He wanted them to know that he had shown them the Father. They had seen the Almighty God through the presence of his Son. And they could believe in that God on the basis of the evidence that had been provided by his Son. And that if they truly loved Jesus, then they would do the things that he said. And again, remember, that was a lesson that he hammered home again and again and again. If you love me, keep my commandments. And he wanted them to know that if they trusted in him, and trusted in his Holy Spirit, his advocate, that no matter what happened, no matter what scary things befell them, no matter what scary things they had to look at or face, that in the face of those scary things, they would have peace. And we might look at that and we'll say, well, that's, that was a good message for at least 11 of those 12 men. We know about the other guy. But for those 11 men, that's a great message that Jesus decided to share with them on the last night that he was with them. But here's our takeaway. He wants us to know all of those things too. And that's why John was inspired to write them down so that we could read them and learn from them and know them. Because Jesus wants us to know, you and I, who are not in that room that night, but have these words breathed out for us by the Holy Spirit. He wants us to know He's gone to prepare a place for us. And that He is still the way to that place. Our brother John has given us some wonderful lessons in recent weeks about the glory of heaven. And hopefully all of us in hearing those lessons have felt that tug of, man, that's where I want to be. Well, Jesus has assured us that He's prepared a place for us in heaven and that He is the way for us to go there. He wants us to know that He has shown us the Father when we read the words and works of Jesus as recorded in Matthew and in Mark and in Luke and in John we are not just seeing the words and works of a man. We are seeing the words and the works of God. And we can believe in Him on the basis of those words and those works. He doesn't ask us for blind faith. He says, look at the evidence and believe on the basis of the evidence. But He also wants us to know even as he wanted those 11 men to know that if we love him, it means that we do what he says. If we really love him, we have to do what he says. That's not an option. He never said, if you love me, 
here's some stuff you might want to try out. We didn't, we didn't read that. He said, if you love me, keep my commands. And he said that in several different ways, just to be sure that if we didn't get it the first time, the message got home by the third or fourth. If we love him, we'll do the things that he said. And also, he wants us to know, even as he wanted these 11 men to know, that if we trust in him, and if he, we trust in his Holy Spirit, his advocate, who is with us and in us, who speaks up for us, who defends us, who pleads our case to the Almighty God, if we trust in him and we trust in his Spirit, then we can have peace. Even in a world that can't keep peace for five minutes we can have the peace that surpasses all understanding if we trust in the one who died to provide it. This was the message, the first half of the message anyway, that Jesus wanted to share on the last night that he was with his disciples. On the last time that he was going to be able in this life to converse with them directly and extensively, these were the things he wanted them to hear, wanted them to know, and wanted them to carry forward. And he wants us to know all of those things too. As you go about your week this week, think about these things. Think about the fact that Jesus has gone to prepare a place in heaven for you and that he is the one and only way to get there. Think about the fact that he has shown you by the things that he's said and the things that he has done, the power of the Almighty God and that you can believe in God not just because somebody said so, but because you've seen the evidence in his word. And know also that if you really love him, it means committing yourself to doing the things he said to do. But also know that if you trust in him fully, that he will give you a peace that is unlike anything in this world. Carry that with you this week. And we'll come back next week and we'll see what else Jesus had to say on this last night he was with his disciples. Austin, come lead us in a song, please, brother.